Okay. Um, <coughs> I noticed that the photocopies of the supplementary of the uh, supplementary extracts from the Gould that were outside my door only started disappear disappearing this morning. So I assume that means there's a number of you who haven't yet read uh, the play, either at, at least in the Gould translation with commentary. Who, who has been able to read the play through in the Gould translation? No one. One person. Two. Three. And who's been able to read the play through in some other translation? Yes? Okay. Um, well, if you could look at the supplementary passages, and particularly the commentary by Gould on those key passages, okay, um, I think that's going to be quite important for uh, working through some of those key moments in the play um, in, um, in seminars. Uh, because Gould's commentary on certain repeated terms and images in the play is absolutely crucial for opening it up. And you can read the play through uh, in English, if you don't have the Greek, in a number of translations, and you just do not see the connections that are there, uh, and which Gould makes accessible, I think, for the first time to an English reader. So that's why I'm stressing, I'm not, not to say I'm being unnecessarily fussy, it's why I'm stressing the importance of the Gould translation. Okay, um, <coughs> I said I'd tidy up a few um, things from last week um, and, and move into and, and at least start to open up the question of, um, <coughs> of um, uh, Freud's reading of, of Oedipus, the status of Oedipus, uh, and um, <coughs> how Oedipus, how different Oedipus might look as it were, if you read it with a post-Freudian or um, Laplanchian eye. Um, and to borrow the terms we looked at last week, um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, Laplanche's argument, um, Freud's reading of, of Oedipus, um, which establishes it, thanks, a crucial concept to become central to psychoanalysis, that of the Oedipus complex, as a sort of structuring moment in which the, the infant's identifications and drives are structured through passing through the Oedipus. Um, <clears throat> it gives that absolutely crucial concept um, in his turn to uh, the play. Uh, and of course, when Freud thinks about Oedipus, he also thinks about Hamlet. The two of them are inevitably twinned in his, in his thinking. Um, from a Laplantian point of view, Freud's reading is a Ptolemaic reading. Okay? It's a reading that centers on the individual and sees the individual as the source of, uh, the, 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 uh, in this case, the play's tragic action. Um, uh, and so Laplanche's uh, attempt to uh, reformulate a set of what he calls new foundations for psychoanalysis, which in part involves going back to and rethinking uh, the original moment of the seduction theory because of the primacy of the other and of the relation to the other that, it, that, that, it, that uh, he wants to put absolutely center stage in psychoanalytic thinking. Um, and hence his metaphor of uh, Copernican and uh, something that centers around, moves around the field force of the other. Uh, whereas in the Ptolemaic, borrowed from uh, the... Um, <coughs> the geocentric model of cosmology, 
uh, everything centers around us, it centers around the earth, the individual, as it were. Now, um, that, that reformulation repositions uh, uh, both Freud's reading of the two tragedies, uh, Hamlet and Oedipus, but it repositions some of the major concepts, all the major concepts, in fact, uh, of Freudian psychoanalytic theory. Um, they, it, it reformulates them in, in, in crucial ways. Um, now, we talked about in the seminars, that I had a sense in both seminars we didn't quite get to uh, 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 the end. Uh, uh, we talked about the opening um, two or three topics that I'd listed in my email for last week. Uh, the question in, in the, uh, what Laplanche calls the fundamental anthropological situation of the human being, uh, the two, the two um, protagonists, uh, the adult, the infant, uh, and, and as it were, what they bring to that situation and what takes place between them in that situation. Well, the, the infant brings to that situation its own uh, unfinishedness, its own prematurity, uh, its own uh, ab absolute radical dependency on the other for survival. Um, it brings its own um, in biologically incomplete, as it were, uh, Im immaturity, prematurity to that situation. And the adult brings their uh, formed un unconscious and sexuality to that situation. And something takes place between them. Uh, <coughs> a trans a, in the first instance, uh, uh, if you like, at a primary level, uh, there is a, a process of interaction between the needy, need-driven infant and the nurturing uh, uh, adult, um, in which each are in some sense responsive to the other. But as it were, piggybacking on the, on the back of that, parasiting it, sometimes a metaphor Laplanche uses, uh, is the question of the, uh, the input from the adult, uh, the adult with an unconscious, the adult with... Uh, uh, a fully formed sexuality, an adult with a repressed infantile sexuality uh, of his or her own, which is awakened and reactivated by the relationship to the infant in the present moment. Um, <coughs> now, Laplanche talks about implantation, the implantation of certain, uh, which makes it quite material, it stresses the element of impact, okay. Uh, it's not just a sort of cerebral or intellectual transmission of signifiers, as in the kind of speech I'm making to you now, um, <coughs> but uh, the implantation of uh, pre-verbal but still signifying gestures, tones of voice, uh, uh, forms of bodily contact between infant and adult. Um, that These things both impact the body surface of the infant but they also carry a meaning, uh, and they're addressed. They are they have ve they're vectors. They're targeting the infant, as it were. They're not just, as it were, signifiers passing overhead like a flock of cranes that might be going anywhere, as it were. They are uniquely addressed to targeting the infant in its needs, in its openness, its needy openness and vulnerability. Um, uh, <coughs> and it's it's around that that um, Laplanche criticizes Freud, that except for <coughs> fleeting moments in Freud's thought, there is an absence of what he calls the category of the message, of the signifier, um, 
which is a, a, in, introduces a third dimension um, in, some, in some ways between uh, adult and um, infant. Um, now, in particular, um, in thinking about what takes place between them, um, Laplanche wants to position a fundamental concept of Freud's repression, but to rethink that uh, repression. Okay, so the repression isn't just something that um, uh, spontaneously uh, wells up from wherever, uh, any more than the drives are. Uh, but repression <coughs> is situated as the recipient's response to the implantations coming from the adult, the infantile recipient's response to. Uh, and he reconceptualizes or remodels it. It's always there in some way, um, even in the, in the later 1915 paper on repression. Um, but it's, uh, it's only fully and momentarily addressed as such in that letter that I gave you in the, one of the handouts, <coughs> December um, 96 letter, where Freud explicitly in, invokes the model of translation. Okay, that the psychic structure is built up through a series of transfers, trans, retranslations, re re or reinscriptions of, of material <coughs> in dif uh, at different um, uh, phases of development. Uh, and at certain uh, phases of development, s some of that highly charged material that has been inscribed in one psychic site, if you like, um, is, uh, resists translation or you could put it either way, either it resists translation or the translator resists the process of transferring it across uh, and incorporating it into, um, into themselves. Uh, so the process of, res of reception is initially one of passivity, as something uh, is, is transplanted and impacts on the body surface of the infant um, of a kind that the infant doesn't have already, as it were. It's something new. Um, and it's enigmatic, it's puzzling. It's en and it's puzzling not just because the infant doesn't have a code with, by which to translate these uh, gestures coming from the adult, uh, but that the, that it, is it is enigmatic to the adult, to the transmitter as well, be precisely because uh, the transmitter, the adult, has, a, has an unconscious. And something of that unconscious is transmitted through what is being said. Um, or... Um, acted out, um, and it's the infants, and this it's this uh, uh, other dimension, uh, this enigmatic dimension uh, that uh, provokes, excites, um, in some sense even traumatizes the recipient because it's in excess; it can't be coped with, can't be processed, uh, it can't be um, integrated, it can't, to use one of Freud's favorite words, it can't be bound into the ego. Um, so the process of um, building up an ego um, is something that happens through these uh, translations uh, of which there is always a remainder, i.e. in which there is always something that remains untranslated. So something's carried across, something's incorporated, something's processed. Laplanche uses a, a digestive metaphor, something is metabolized. Uh, but for every act of translation, for every process of metabolization, there's something that remains untranslated. Uh, something that is resistant to incorporation. It's too excessive, it's too troubling, it's too, it's, uh, too painful, it's too whatever. Um, and uh, 
so, so for every, and, that, and uh, Freud himself says in that letter uh, to Fleece, um, such uh, a, a, a failure of translation is what we call clinically repression. Such a failure of translation is what we clinically call repression. Okay. So from, for, a while, for a moment, Freud joins these two concepts together, identifies the two concepts. Repression is a failure of translation, or a refusal, might be a stronger way even of putting it, a refusal of, tra of translation. Something's carried across, something isn't. And what's carried across is incorporated into the infant self-representation, the beginnings of its ego, and it takes us right back to the old idea of this, the body ego and the skin ego as the receptive surface through which these enigmatic gestures and um, uh, signifiers are uh, received, transmitted and received by the infant. Um, but something is excluded. Something is intolerable. Something is, uh, is warded off. Uh, <coughs> and that doesn't go away. Okay. Um, that, that the act of excluding it or repressing it or uh, repelling it doesn't abolish it. It, re it is inscribed somewhere else in the psychic structure. Um, so the coming into being of the ego and the coming into being of the um, unconscious are recto verso, two sides of the same sheet of paper, as it were. And they're both, in a sense, byproducts of those defensive processes of, of, um, of translation repression, failure of translation. And indeed, uh, at, a, at a certain later point in his thought, <coughs> Laplanche comes to identify the Freudian concept of sublimation with successful translation. Uh, and repression is with the failure of translation or the refusal of translation. So what is incorporated into the ego uh, <coughs> uh, and processed and bound there um, is, 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 is another way of understanding Freud's concept of sublimation. Okay, um, and we saw that, um, that in, the one, in the di one of the diagrams in chapter three, uh, Laplanche returning to the idea of the body ego, uh, which is uh, elaborated by Anzieux, who was a close friend and colleague of Laplanche's, um, <coughs> uh, into the skin ego and a whole set of functions attributed to the skin to the skin surface as, as, as a kind of prototype for the formation of, a, of, of an ego. Um, and he gives, he gives two diagrams, um, very simple little diagrams. One, one is um, is, is a little blob, uh, that, which is the as yet undifferentiated body, uh, psychosoma, I suppose. <coughs> body, ego is inverted commas, because uh, uh, there's no differentiation. Uh, there is uh, a, a, a receptive, highly sensitive body surface um, uh, <coughs> on, on the periphery of which, in one of the zones or uh, the thresholds, the uh, uh, room-like structures in the erogenous zones in particular, but anywhere where there's a kind of in, involution and, or break in the skin surface where the eyes, ears, where the receptive apparatus is located in the human body, okay, there's the impact of something coming from the other, uh, which he calls the enigmatic signifier, ES. Um, 
So as, uh, the ego then is just coextensive with the with the with the body, with the, bo the bodily organism. Um, a process then takes place of uh, uh, translation, repression, failure of translation, uh, and something <coughs> is formed that is uh, uh, internal to um, the individual, uh, and he represents that. Again, and it's a ta relation of tangency, as in geometry. Two circles are, uh, they, they, they have a shared po po point of overlap or coincidence. They're tangential to each other. Uh, <coughs> so the larger circle is the, the whole individual, the ego individual. Um, uh, and the new agency that has been formed is the ego agency. Uh, Freud's term for this in German is instans, which is, it's got a legal, juridical connotation. It's the same in French, instance. Um, it, it, it functions in legal discourse. Um, and it means somebody who, um, uh, who, who uh, represents, um, stands in for, substitutes for um, uh, a, a larger body, as it were. Um, uh, the French idea, of, again, a military, in this case, a military term, which is passed into English as a title in the army, lieutenant or lieutenant, is literally somebody who takes the place of. Uh, lieu meaning place, tenant, taking somebody who takes the place of something else, stands in for them, substitutes for them, in some sense represents them. Okay, so the ego, as agency, as instance, as as, as representation, is formed as a distinct psychical entity that, that, that has a double relationship to the larger whole. Um, on the one hand, and this is mapped in terms of uh, metonymy and metaphor, in one sense, the ego as agency is a metaphor for the whole, okay? uh, is, is a kind of likeness, and is formed on in particular on that mental projection inwards that Freud talks about of the body surfaces. It's a simulacrum, okay? A self-representation that is like me. Uh, but the, this metaphorical um, instance uh, also uh, uh, is, as it were, my agent. Uh, it's uh, a part of me. Uh, it, it, uh, it substitutes for me. It does work for me. It, it's a delegate for the whole, as it were. So it has a it has a, 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 not just a, a relation of likeness, as in metaphor, uh, right, but a, a relation of contiguity, as in, as in the rhetorical trope of metonymy. Um, and <coughs> in a lot of arguments in structuralist theory, semiotics, and psychoanalysis, those two rhetorical tropes of metaphor and metonymy, one representing relations of similarity and the other uh, uh, relations of, of adjacency, if you like, or contiguity. Um, like a part, a part, the relation of a part to a whole. Um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a particular uh, causal and signifying relationship. Okay, so we have then an ego agency, and the point of, the point of tangency is the enigmatic signifier, the zone in which it impacts uh, <coughs> on the, uh, on the uh, bod bodily ego. In fact, what he calls it there, I shouldn't call it that, should I? Um, it's not, 
in the second diagram, he doesn't call it ES, because it's been translated, it's been fragmented, it's been, some of it has been incorporated, some of it has been expelled. So what's here um, is the residue, the untranslated residue of the enigmatic signifier. And the SO stands for source object. Now, in, in this um, uh, portmanteau word, source object, Laplanche is taking two words from Freud's theory of the drive, so where the drive is theorized as having a source in the body, uh, aiming at an object, uh, an external object. So the classic instance from the oral, uh, uh, the oral drive is something that, uh, in Freud's account, originates in the experiences, the pleasurable experiences or byproducts of the, of the eating, sucking, digestive process, uh, and its aim is, uh, at the level of need, it is the milk supplied by the mother or in a bottle, um, or um, uh, the pleasurable repetition of that through the drive. So it's, it begins then attached to an external object, uh, and then it's substituted for in an autoerotic moment where, um, for the breast, you get the fist or the foot or some other substitute, as it were, at a point where the pleasure-seeking repetition becomes independent of the original need for taking in nourishment. Okay, so Laplanche takes this notion of an external object and an internal source, uh, and he combines them. What's at stake is something that has come in from the outside, okay, an object, uh, and it's been inscribed, um, and it comes to function as a source, as an internal source. Okay, so the source object is an object that has become a source, an external object that has been taken in, uh, that uh, has been translated and, and fragmented and not parts of it not translated because it's not just a physical object, it bears a signification, it bears a meaning, um, a meaning that is exciting but puzzling and opaque to the recipient. Okay. So there's a residue, there's an untranslated leftover, a remainder, uh, and that, that is the source that has become an object. Um, and what is it the source of? It's the source of the drive, okay? The source of the drive. What this does to Freud's concept of the drive is that it, it um, rethinks it and repositions it. The drive isn't something then that spontaneous, well, spontaneously arises from the, as a byproduct of the meeting of needs, um, you know, welling up from within, as it were, um, rather, the, the drive is uh, something that uh, arises from the processes of implantation, translation, failure of translation, repression. As it were, it's a byproduct. So the drive, uh, as it were, itself originates then uh, from this intersubjective relationship between the needy dependent infant and the adult other. Uh, <coughs> So both the ego and the drives, then, uh, in, the, in different ways, formations that arise from this process of um, asymmetrical uh, but inter intersubjective uh, uh, interaction between adult and, adult and uh, infant. Um, they're not there from the beginning. Indeed, at different points, Freud will say that the, the ego is not a kind of entity that can be there from the beginning. It has to be formed. Um, so the, uh, and the same thing with the unconscious. Uh, though, of course, Freud's, 
Freud is, dri is drawn in, 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 in contradictory directions by the Copernican and Ptolemaic, um, if you like, tendencies or gravitational tugs at work on his thought. So there are texts in which he will talk about a primordial unconscious, an unconscious that is uh, just there from the beginning based on the body and its needs. Um, and that is very much at odds with the notion of uh, an unconscious that is formed, that is constructed um, at, a late, at, a, at a later point um, by describable and specifiable processes that take place in an intersubjective field, the field between uh, the, the adult and the infant, as it were. So that com completely relocates some of these fundamental Freudian concepts, ego, drive, unconscious, Right, as formations that arise from and that are byproducts of that uh, fundamental anthropological situation, which is what Laplanche wants to call primal seduction. Okay. But precisely because the, the infant seeks to uh, defend itself, uh, to differentiate itself, to build up a barrier, to form an ego, um, and to aspire to a kind of autonomy. Um, uh, it, will, it will, as it were, um, aspire to something which it can never quite reach uh, because it, it will always carry within it the residues, the remainders of the, of the other, what Laplanche calls the internal other, uh, the external other, the internal other. Indeed, in Freud's German, he will, talk, he will himself differentiate between uh, uh, the, the, the psychical other uh, uh, which is the thing in the unconscious, if you like, um, the thing that is the unconscious, and uh, the external other. Now, a model that prioritizes that movement towards closure to that feeling that, um, <coughs> uh, that, uh, that, that, that tendency towards thinking of oneself as being a kind of unnaturally um, autonomous entity, um, and uh, the reverse, that is to say, um, uh, a recognition of dependency, of relationship to the other, and of the way in which the other, the other is there from the beginning. Uh, and uh, when the movement of closure takes place, it in some senses encloses those residues, those remainders of the other, uh, and the other's transmissions or implantations. Uh, and you can see then the analogy, the cosmological analogy uh, between uh, other-centeredness and auto-centeredness or self-centeredness, if you like. Um, so the ego, in a way, is all, uh, uh, as a narcissistic formation. We'll see this more fully when we look at the narcissism paper next term. The, the ego as an, a narcissistic <coughs> formation is based on that kind of uh, gathering in of libidinal energies and, center and centering them on the self and then feeding them out again, as if you were the source uh, or the origin. Um, and it leads to Laplanche's uh, epigram. Um, if Freud is his own Copernicus, where he identifies psychoanalysis with the Copernican revolution as the third in a series of uh, blows to human narcissism, decentering blows, um, <coughs> uh, the ego is no longer... With psychoanalysis, the ego has to recognize it is no longer master in its own house. It's inhabited by the unconscious and by the other. Now, 
Now, Laplanche, uh, as I said, rewrites Freud's analogy between the Copernican and psychoanalytic revolutions because uh, he wants to foreground these op opposing gravitational pulls at the level of theory, which replicate at the level of theory um, uh, the, the tendencies within the object of theory, the human psyche itself. <clears throat> so Freud's move from a trauma-based theory of, of seduction to a drive-based theory of development um, in the course of the late 1890s um, <clears throat> is a crucial moment for Laplanche. It needs in interrogation, critical interrogation and interpretation. Laplanche has argued that despite the great gains made with the theory of infantile sexuality and of the drives, crucial elements were lost in this transition. Uh, in particular, what Freud encountered but failed to recognize in the restricted and grotesque form of the pathological cases of infantile abuse that he, that he dealt with in his clinical practice um, was the universal structure of the, of the adult with an unconscious uh, and, and the open, vulnerable, independent infant. Now, it's at that very moment uh, <coughs> where um, in September 97, um, Freud... Um, writes his letter to Fleece saying, I don't think I believe my seduction theory anymore, can't account for everything, and he gives four reasons. Um, that's the moment at which he turns, within a month or so of writing that letter, he turns to tragedy. Uh, he turns to it, Sophocles and Shakespeare, and to their, there's two great tragedies. It's offering a model uh, of, of subjectivity, in particular male subjectivity, because he always starts from the male uh, first. So within a month, less than a month actually, um, uh, about three weeks of writing that le the letter, the famous letter where he supposedly um, abandons or repudiates his seduction theory, he writes on the 15th of October in 97, uh, the letter that I gave you in the handout uh, as part of the handout last week for Freud's readings of tragedy. He writes uh, to Fleece, a, gen a single idea of general value dawned on me. I have found, in my own case too, the phenomenon of being in love with my mother and jealous of my father, and I now consider it a universal event in early childhood. A universal event in early childhood is a big claim to make. <clears throat> if this is so, we can understand the gripping power of Oedipus Rex. The Greek legend seizes upon a compulsion which everyone recognizes because he senses its existence in himself, Freud writes. Everyone in the audience was once a budding Oedipus in fantasy, and each, each one recoils in horror from the dream fulfillment that is here trans, translated into reality, the reality on, in, the, in the world of the play. So Freud sets up a tension between each former budding Oedipus in the audience, on the one hand, and the Oedipus of legend, uh, uh, and, and the Oedipus who walks the tragic stage, on the other uh, though these two later figures, the legendary Oedipus and the tragic Oedipus, are, are actually different from each other. Uh, uh, <coughs> and when uh, Freud talks about Oedipus, he's really talking about Sophocles' Oedipus. He's talking about the play. Whereas the, 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 there are many legends around Oedipus, and there are ver different variations of the Oedipus story, uh, can, some of them quite radically different from each other. So one has to bear that in mind, I think, um, uh, that Sophocles is doing something very specific and particular with the figure of Oedipus that hasn't quite been done before. Um, 
And he says later on, three years later in the interpretation of dreams, King Oedipus merely shows us the fulfillment of our own childhood wishes. He also makes a parallel case about Shakespeare's Hamlet um, as well. And he says it has roots in the same dream soil as, uh, as Oedipus Rex, the same primeval dream material. Um, I, I won't say I'll keep Hamlet for, for next week. Um, Now, but I do want us to be thinking about the contrast between Hamlet and Oedipus. Um, even though Freud gives, uh, having given a reading of Oedipus, he then gives a, quotes, Oedipal reading of Hamlet. Um, he does say, um, uh, he, he differentiates the spectator's relationship to that figure in each tragedy. Okay? Uh, and in particular, he locates the budding Oedipus uh, not in the spectator of, Ham of Shakespeare's play Hamlet, but in Hamlet himself. Okay? Um, uh, whereas when he's talking about Sophocles' tragedy, he sees uh, the, the, the budding Oedipus, uh, as it were, ha having been located in the back history or prehistory of the spectator of that play, and the play being in some sense addressed to that. Um, so it's... I think, I think that's an important change or difference or, or slippage uh, between the two plays, as it were. Um, something has changed in the, mo in the historical movement from um, Sophocles' play to Shakespeare's play. Um, though in both of them, he wants to stress uh, that configuration of, uh, of um, rivalry with the father uh, and uh, an erotic, incestuous attachment to the maternal figure. But it's open and in your face in Sophocles' tragedy. Uh, these actions are actually performed, um, whereas they're not performed in, um, in, in Shakespeare's tragedy. Something else is performed. Um, someone else, other than the son, Hamlet, murders the father uh, and takes his place with the mother. But it's that configuration of actions, nevertheless, is present in the Hamlet play. Um, now, one of the things that's striking about uh, and important, I think, about Freud's reading of Oedipus um, is, is the way in which uh, what he has to say about the form taken by the tragedy, uh, its form is that of a, what's, what is traditionally called a tragedy of fate, its relationship to fate, uh, to the gods, uh, to the supernatural. Um, Freud says, you know, still having Hamlet as a contrast in his mind, um, in Sophocles' play, the, um, the parasitical incestuous material is brought into the open and, re and realized. We have in the Greek play, not as in Hamlet, a negative and indirect, but rather a positive and direct representation of parasite and incest. Um, now this ignores what m anyone reading or seeing the play and, and thinking on it um, would realize pretty soon, of course, is this a sort of dislocation between um, Oedipus his actions and Oedipus's intentions. Um, 
Now, he has intentions with regard to the question of incest and parricide because he has received from the oracle a warning, right, that that's what's going to happen to him. Right? He goes from Corinth um, because he's heard somebody say that he's not really the son of his father, Polybus, the king of Corinth. So he goes to Apollo's oracle at Delphi um, to ask, uh, as, as Greeks for generations, for hundreds of years did, uh, asking for a solution to this, this besetting existential problem. Who, who am I? Who, who's, who's, who's my, whose son am I? Um, uh, and, he wants, and his parents say, no, no, that's not true. You're our child. Um, but he wants it confirmed by Apollo's oracle. So he goes there. And Apollo ignores his request, but says to him, you know, you will um, murder your father uh, and sleep with your mother. And poor old Oedipus, understandably, is appalled by this, uh, by this oracular statement. Uh, oracular statements were often riddling, and so it might not have meant what it said at a literal level. It might have meant something else. Okay? Um, uh, usually, uh, the oracle didn't come out and say things in so brutally a direct way. It would give, it would, it would, if it, even if it said things that looked at first as if they were literal, they often had to be taken metaphorically, and the mistake was to take them literally. Um, but in this occasion, he appears, the, the oracle appears to be saying something very direct uh, to Oedipus. Okay. Um, so there's a dis- and he flees away. He decides he will not go back home to Corinth. So he has the best of intentions. His intentions are precisely not to to kill his father or to sleep with his mother. Uh, and so he avoids home and his family precisely in order um, to avoid that fate. Um, and in fleeing from uh, the oracle's predictions, you know, well, what happens? Um, he meets a man uh, on his journey who attacks him and whom he then kills. And on, uh, uh, <coughs> and on triumphing over the Sphinx, when he arrives at the city of Thebes immediately afterwards, um, he is offered the kingship of Thebes uh, and the hand of the widowed queen in marriage, and which he only then accepts. In both cases, something has happened to him. He responds to it. Uh, (coughs) And it only turns out, as it were, in retrospect, that the man he's killed was his father, whom he never knew, and the woman he's married is his unknown mother. But Oedipus himself... Uh, is strangely absent from these actions. These are not things he intended or wished to commit. So there's this gap, uh, a dislocation, if you like, between the protagonist and his tragic fate in Sophocles' play. Uh, A fate that he turns out only in retrospect to have have performed. Um, So the question of the oracle, then, is absolutely crucial. The oracle insists... Uh, in, a, in a quite crucial way in the play. And indeed, this is not the first time that the oracle has, has, has insisted in being an active agent in the play because uh, Laius himself had received uh, an oracle from, uh, from Delphi saying that you will, have, you will um, have a son uh, and the son will uh, murder you and, and take your place with your wife. Um, and so what do they do? Um, as soon as the baby is born and turns out to be a boy, um, his uh, feet are, are pierced and tied together and he's given to a, a servant, a, a shepherd, to be taken out and exposed on Mount Catharon um, uh, and to die. And so it's a kind of almost ritual or, 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 or classic way of, 
of, of getting rid of either um, unwanted children or children who are in some sense um, uh, marked or damned by the gods. So the, the oracle is central right, to both uh, what, the, what Oedipus does and what his parents do. It structures their action. Now, in both his epistolary first thoughts sent to Fleece in the letter of 97 and his later published account, Freud is concerned to displace the question of the oracle, to dispute the play's status as a tragedy of fate or a tragedy of destiny. He says, not that at all. It looks like it, but it isn't really. That's not why it's so, so, such a great play. Its tragic power to move a modern audience, Freud argues, is not to be explained by the traditional contrast of the will of the gods or destiny versus the struggle of the human protagonist to escape their fate, uh, but rather by, quote, the particular nature of the material on which this contrast is amplified. Okay, so it's not the contrast that is so important, it's what the actual material is, that is to say, parasite and incest. It is, the, it is that material, then, not the oracular form that it takes in the play, Freud wants to argue, um, which is so desperately resisted by both Oedipus and his parents, uh, which is crucial for Freud. Modern attempts to imitate Greek tragedy of destiny or of fate you know, haven't worked, Freud argued, because we reject any arbitrary individual compulsion. Uh, a, a famous German play just before Freud was writing by Gödel-Parzer called Die Anfra, which is about sibling incest, uh, a brother and a sister falling in love with each other. Um, and he says it's... It, it's, it doesn't work, it doesn't have, and it was never felt to have great tragic power. Um, though it has this same form of a fate, as it were, um, and the human struggle against that fate, etc. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't, why doesn't it work, Freud wants to argue? Well, because actually what, what makes it work in Sophocles' play is not that supernatural presence in the play. We can bracket that out. That, that's not of significance. Um, or, not, or at least not to be taken at face value. Okay. Um, it's, it's a secular question, that's, is, is what is at issue, um, in which uh, Freud is a kind of everyman figure. What happens to Freud... Um, uh, sorry, what happens to Oedipus? Oedipus is an everyman figure. What happens to Oedipus is that he's, um, he lives through a situation that we all, uh, everyone, has to face. Um, it's a secular fate. Uh, Freud says, uh, like Oedipus, we live in ignorance of these wishes which are repugnant to morality, which have been forced on us by nature. This ignorance, Oedipus's and ours as audience, Freud argues, um, in, a quite, in a late text of 1938, the year before he dies, where he returns again to these twin tragedies, this ignorance of what he's doing when he does it, Freud says, is the legitimate representation of the unconscious state into which, for adults, the whole experience has been fallen, has fallen. So the ignorance, and a lot of people have said, well, you know, um, uh, uh, Oedipus didn't want to do that. In fact, he went out of his way not to do it. Um, so clearly he wasn't acting on uh, an Oedipal com complex, and so Freud's interpretation doesn't work. Um, and Freud's response is to say, his ignorance is simply a representation of, of, of his ignorance of his own wishes, as it were. Um, uh, that is to say, of their unconscious status. The reverse side of Oedipus's ignorance of what he has done is the foreknowledge of the oracle of Apollo at Delphi and its double warning uh, to his father and then to himself of what is going to happen. 
whereas Freud wants to translate or perform a kind of interpretive reduction of the oracle um, and its prophetic function. And I quote again from another late text of Freud's that I included in the handout. The coercive power of the oracle, Freud says, which makes or should make the hero innocent, is a recognition of the inevitability of fate. The inevitability um, uh, which has condemned every son to live through the Oedipus complex. In an earlier retrospect in 1924, Freud had commented that fate and the oracle were no more than materializations of an inner necessity. Fate and the oracle are no more than materializations of an inner necessity, externalizations of an inner necessity. So an internal necessity with the inevitability of fate, one that is forced on us by nature, is what Freud translates uh, Apollo and his oracle into. Okay, that's Freud's interpretation, um, which is, as it were, a, a, a de-supernaturalizing, uh, an internalizing, in other words, a Ptolemaic reading. This reversal of an external agency, the oracle, into an internal necessity as merely the projection outwards of that internal necessity exactly repeats the logic that had characterised Freud's thinking at this moment of crisis around the seduction theory uh, of 1897. Okay, so he's thinking about the tragedy and he's thinking about his theoretical impasse around the question of seduction at the same time. Uh, and he's drawn to the play and this happens again with the text we'll be looking at next term when he's writing about the uncanny and he talks about Hoffman's, Tales of Hoffman that we'll be looking at. Um, he's drawn to a play that is structured around, if you like, a traumatic relationship to, to, an, to the other or to a figure of the other. Um, and he then gives, uh, if you like, an internalizing, quotes, Oedipal interpretation uh, of that text, as it were. And he does it, it happens twice, he does it, it's exactly the same thing each time round. Okay. An external agency is then interpreted as being simply the outward projection of internal, internal processes. So uh, it's, the, it's in the immediate wake of Freud's famous abandonment of his theory of traumatic seduction that he turns to Oedipus and to tragedy. And, um, and re just as I say, three weeks later, something like that. Um, so it's the same, the same logic that's at work, if you like, in, in, uh, in both uh, Freud's move to positing a universal event in early childhood, um, <coughs> uh, which, which is, well, wells up from within. Um, uh, it generates wishes that are imposed on us by nature. Um, they have an internal inevitability to them, as it were, which makes them both <coughs> universal but also if you like, endogenous, generated from within. This has the effect of foreclosing uh, in Freud's reading of the plays, as well as in his metapsychology, which is a point, uh, you know, of course, the polemical point that Laplanche makes. It forecloses the figure of the seductive or traumatizing other um, uh, <coughs> in uh, Sophocles' tragedy. Uh, and in particular, the figure of Apollo and the Delphic oracle, and the Greek, uh, the Greek, Sophocles Greek word for this, which is daemon. Okay, and this is where, um, um, where, uh, again and again, in his commentary, Gould um, is illuminating the Greek word, daemon. 
or daemones in, in the plural. And it's usually, or sometimes it's written as an I, um, it's usually translated as gods um, in, in English translations. Um, uh, it's a slippery concept in Greek uh, because uh, it can mean, there can be good demons and bad demons, daemons, one should say, good, good, and bad. And, and indeed, I think the Greek term for being happy is eudaimonic, where let's say you have a, you, you have a benign daemon, as it were. A daemon here is, a, is some kind of agency or power at work in the individual, um, which is both attached to or haunts the individual, but is not simply reducible to the individual. Okay? Um, and indeed, sometimes named figures, like Apollo, uh, can be referred to as a daemon. Though more usually, the term is used to refer to more obscure, um, uh, diffuse um, energies or, uh, that, that, are, that are not um, nameable and specifiable, as it were. Um. So there is that dimension in the play um, in which there are human agents, they do things, uh, and yet when they do those things, something else is acting through them. Okay, that's that, but what I'm calling a sort of bifocal dimension. And it's, it's there in a lot of Greek tragedy. Uh, uh, in the Oresteia, in Aeschylus' great trilogy, when Clytemnestra, uh, having struck down and murdered her husband Agamemnon, and he's returned from Troy because he's in revenge for his sacrifice of their daughter Iphigenia, um, uh, she appears at the palace steps um, triumphantly over his body and uh, the blood-red robes. Uh, and she says, I, I did it with this hand. I did it. She claims the deed as hers. And then a few minutes later, she says, don't think that when I killed him that it was I who did it. It was the daemon of the house of Atreus, the old daemon who, and it goes back generations to uh, what uh, in the previous generation uh, the two brothers, Thyestes and, I can't remember the second one, um, fighting each other, and one of them kills the children of the other and feeds them to the father in a banquet, <coughs> as it were. Um, so there's, uh, there's felt to be this, uh, this demonic possession that is transmitted from generation to generation, a sort of collective compulsion to repeat, as it were, which is acts through individuals but is not reducible to those individuals, okay, and which is which has this demonic force or power. Indeed, Freud himself, at different times, when he talks about the death drive, um, will use the word daemon, demonic, um, to describe it. it. It works in and through individuals who choose quite consciously to do or not to do certain things, uh, but when they've done it, um, uh, uh, they can neither disown their deed nor simply say that the deed belongs only to them. It belongs, it belongs to something else. And it's that dimension of the play that Freud's reading, as it were, systematically forecloses. Okay? This relationship to the other. The other is figured in, in two different ways in the play. And most obviously in relation, well, most obviously in relation to the parents, to what the parents do to Oedipus. Okay? Uh, uh, and to their uh, feelings and, and behaviours that impact on him. Okay? And of course his very name um, punningly, comes from what they've done to him, hasn't it? Uh, uh, Oedipus, um, uh, comes from the Greek, from oida, 
meaning to know, and P-O-U-S, foot. Okay. Um, and, it, and that relates to, um, uh, but it also comes from, uh, it's got two <coughs> derivations. It means swollen. Uh, so it can mean both swollen-footed, um, and the, the messenger who reveals his identity says, you know, that's how you got your name, because when we found you, your feet were, were, were pierced and tied together. Uh, and he said, yes, I've always had that problem with my feet. And he says, and, and that's where you get your name. That's who you are. That marks you who you are. So he's kind of maimed and named by the same, by the same parental um, piercing of the body. Um, but at the same time, it also means, it's from the Greek verb, oido, I know. Um, and it relates to the question of the... Um, the oracle, uh, not the oracle, well, it was a kind of oracle, the riddle of the Sphinx. He solves the riddle of the Sphinx and that, uh, when he comes to Troy. Uh, and, uh, it's, and because of that, they offer him the kingship and the queen's hand in marriage. And the riddle of the Sphinx uh, was, was uh, what is it, um, what is that being that uh, begins life with four feet, tetrapus, um, uh, becomes, stands upright, becomes uh, two-footed, uh, and, uh, and, and then becomes three-footed, tripus, tetrapus, diapus, tripus, um, and it, when it has most feet, is most feeble. Uh, and the answer to that is man. And when the Sphinx receives that, that answer to the riddle, uh, she goes off and commits suicide, or she hurls herself off a cliff or something. Uh, and this is taken as a kind of allegory um, in which Oedipus, and he boasts in the play, I, I solve the riddle using nome, reason, not by going to the gods like a Tiresias the prophet, he says to him, you couldn't solve the riddle. You had your auguries from birds, etc. You couldn't do anything with the Sphinx. I, Oedipus, I, I solved it using reason. Um, and he puns on his name. He says, Ho maiden oidus oidipus. I, n ignorant old me, nothing knowing no foot. <laughs> I solved the riddle. The one who's called no foot, I solved the riddle, he says. Uh, but as he later finds out, the reason why he was called Oedipus was because of his swel swelled or swollen foot, uh, which bears the mark, the violence inscribed on his body by, by uh, the parents. So a kind of maiming and naming... Um, that have marked who he is, um, is one way in which, as it were, uh, the other is figured uh, in the play. Um, and the other most telling one, of course, is of uh, Apollo himself. Apollo haunts this play from the very opening speech, the fire-bearing God, right through to the end. Okay. Um, uh, Apollo and the Oracle. So there are different ways, two different major ways in which... The relationship, Oedipus' relationship to the other is figured and, symbolic, and symbolically kind of inserted into the play and it has this series of effects uh, that we can trace through the play. So if you like, uh, what Laplanche's um, intervention into Freudian metapsychology um, can help, can pose as an issue, if you like. Okay, Freud's given this famous reading of Sophocles' tragedy on the basis of it. He, he formulates and names his concept, the Oedipus complex. Okay. Uh, 
what, what does that look like if we take on board Laplanche's argument, uh, his distinction in particular between the Ptolemaic and the Copernican? If Freud gives a Ptolemaic reading of the play, what would a Copernican reading in inverted commas look like? And, and a reading that factored in the daemon, that factored in the relation to the other, okay? And, and the enigmatic but violent inscriptions on the body that the other implement, implants, as it were. What would, that, what would a reading that recognized those things look like? Okay, let's finish there.